0: Welcome back to Random Book Club Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Van. With me, as always, is Justin Mason. How you doing, Justin? I'm doing great, Dan. It's awesome to be
1: back for another episode of Random Book Club Podcast. And let me just say, these past uh, two chapters that we read for today's discussion, they were bangers, dude.
0: Bangers. Holy cow. I'm excited for today's podcast. This is going to be a it good was, one.
1: It, it, this is the first I would say. you know, We've had some story elements here and there these two chapters 14 and 15 were super story heavy oh my goodness dude they were loaded
0: oh yeah we're getting into it uh but first before we get into the podcast i uh we have an interesting format here because we can kind of just do whatever the heck we want uh justin you've been working on that lit rpg and you you let me know that you had a little excerpt a little couple chapter or a couple uh, paragraphs you want to share i think that'd be awesome for the listeners to hear Awesome. So I'm just going to jump right into it.
1: not going to give you any background or any, any knowledge. All I'm going to tell you is that two of our heroes are um, going to explore the butcher's den. We'll leave it at that. Ren grit his teeth. He wondered for a moment if he was in over his head. When he turned the corner and saw the scene that lay bloodied before him, he knew in fact that he was there in front of him was Aria entangled in a mess of meat hooks and chains the entire back of her robes had been torn away, and no less than eight thick, rusted four-inch steel hooks dug deep into the in beneath her skin. The chains went and disappeared to hollow black holes into the ceiling. There was about twenty more or so of these chains that had yet to have their hooks taste flesh. They were shiny and silver, brand new for certain. Ren looked away and wretched at the sight of Arya's white robe drenched in dripping crimson blood. This was the life of adventurers? Wren choked back the urge to cry when Arya looked up at him with a searing pain in her eyes. Her gaze begged him to help her, and he didn't know if he could. The act, alone of her lifting her head, caused blood to trickle from the wounds on her back. Wren could see any semblance of vitality slowly leaving her body. Oh my god. Gruesome. Uh, so I wrote that on a Saturday afternoon with the guys drinking some beers watching the Mets game.
0: No problem.
1: Just a a light,
0: easy, just a, yeah, easy writing. So that would be like dark fantasy, right? Or what do they call that? Like black fan. They call that. There's a name for it.
1: It's dark fantasy, dark
0: fantasy. Um, super creepy, dude. Super creepy.
1: This is like their first mission, right? And they were supposed to go together, but they found out our one character kind of is cursed. Right. So the, one of the guys is like, I'm out, I'm not doing this. I'm not going with your party. I don't want to die. You know so the girl she's like well you know i mean i'll still work with you and she ends up getting kidnapped by the butcher oh my gosh well and this, and this is her fate so
0: that's exciting and um i'm already hearing things in there that remind me of this story that we're reading now uh where ren is saying like this is the life of an adventurer this is what mm-hmm. i bought into so obviously this is probably his first taste of like real gruesomeness Yes. And uh, probably the turn in the story where it's like, OK, now things are getting real, you know. So yeah. and that kind of it, it kind of neatly segues into sort of bedwear right here. Uh, yes. I'm looking forward to hearing more from that. And thanks, Dan. Um, we'll say to, we'll plug it again at the end. But obviously, if you guys want to check out some more of Justin's work, uh, we've got links in the description below to uh, his stuff. So check it out. Obviously, he's got a mind and a talent for writing. So let's jump into The sort of Bedwear, Chapter 14, The First Job. The First Job. The First Job. So let me just start right off. I'm going to just, I'm just going to kind of fire from
1: the hip here. Just the title alone, first of all, makes me think, okay, they're, they going to be working for somebody. Oh, are they going to be pillaging something? Are they going to plunder something? I'm, I just kind of like, kind of like l- here in the title, I'm thinking to myself, The First Job. And when I actually read the chapter, I never thought that it would just be as simple as it was. Yep. This is kind of like a buddy-buddy, them
0: down it's, sequence. Yeah, I it's mean, it's good. good. Yeah, yeah, it's let's, pretty let's good. Let's get into it, man. All right, I'm going to start with uh, the first paragraph of the chapter. Luthien thought, Tiny Alcove? The most ridiculous name he had ever heard for a street. Until Oliver, leading him through the shabby avenues of the d- dilapidated wooden buildings, turned a corner and announced that they were home. Tiny alcove was more an alley than a street, barely eight feet wide, enshrouded in the shadows of tall buildings whose main entrances were on other fronts. So this is like the back side of a bunch of buildings.
1: You're just seem like walking through, like
0: yep, <laughs> and it's called, and the street name is Tiny Alcove, and that's awesome. Perfect. So. Oliver and Luthien continue traveling down this street in the middle of a moonless night, so it's very dark, upstairs Mm -hmm. onto landings as they make their way to Oliver's old house. On the way, Luthien is noticing shady people lurking about, broken down stairs and walkways, and an overall feeling of danger. Oliver points out in a whisper that some of the people Luthien notices are part of a thieving guild, which he is not associated with personally.
1: So this is kind of like our first taste of the guild or guilds, in general, depending on how many are actually in the series. Mm-hmm. But this is kind of like our first taste, our first sight of that.
0: Yeah, I I like it they, that he just throws it in there, and you're you're learning a little bit more about Oliver. Where you're like, oh yeah, that's right. Okay, he was total. We learned from uh, what's the the tavern Tasman uh, Tasman. We were, learned the Tasmanian from, devil from Taz. That, oh, freaking Oliver's back in town, you know? And so Oliver knows some stuff, and he's sharing with Luthien, yo, this is part of And they make it pretty clear, like, those are, those are Thieve Guild guys, and, and then Luthien's kind of like, are you a member? And he's like, no, dude, no, I'm not part of that. I'm not part of them. I'm uh, not part of them jokers. Which I think is cool. You know, you would think he would be, but he's not.
1: Yeah, I kind of expected him to be, honestly.
0: The pair make it to a doorway where Oliver announces that this is his old home. But he's not immediately going in. Instead, he's just stroking his goatee, looking slightly afraid and thoughtful. Oliver tells Luthien that they cannot go down there. To which Luthien lightheartedly questions, One must learn to sense these things? Hmm? Because that's what he's always saying. So here comes a cool part. Then Oliver grins... Jumps to the top of the steps because it, it's like, remember the scene from Home Alone when the guy like slips on the stairs going down yes, to the icy thing? That's what I
1: imagine.
0: That's what I imagine. Like, as they're going through this, like the tiny alcove and they find Oliver's house, it's actually a stairs that go down into it. There's a doorway there. So he jumps to the top of the of the steps and throws his mangosh, which is a dagger. I don't think we ever went over that, but it's just a, a, a dagger. It would be like a, a, a go it's ahead, it's like a
1: disarming dagger.
0: Yeah. Like, It'd be like a sword use. size for a halfling.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's like a disarming dagger that you use as a secondary weapon when using a rapier. Uh,
0: that's uh, cool. For, I didn't yeah. know that, the disarming part. Yep. Directly yep. at the door of the house. So he throws it right at the door of the house, which embeds itself into the wood with a resounding thud. I can see it. I can yep. see the whole scene.
1: It's awesome.
0: And then here's another part from the book. Luthien started to ask what the halfling thought he was doing. But the young man was interrupted by a dozen rapid clicking noises, the sound of stone scraping stone, and a sudden hiss. He spun backward toward the door, then hopped up next to Oliver as darts ricocheted off the stone stairs. The bottom of the landing burned with hot fire, and as Luthian stared on in disbelief, a large block of stone slid out from above the doorway, crashing down into the flames. As though, un- a- <laughs> yes. As though a giant had peeked over the edge of the stairs and puffed out a candle, the flame suddenly disappeared. Now we can go down there, Oliver said.
1: <laughs> what you the do, heck? You do, you, do, you do these voices for Oliver, right? Now we can go down there. Every time I'm reading this, I, I imagine you reading it. In those in that tone, I'm just like, damn it, damn
0: Well that's that's how I hear it. That's how I heard it in Audible, you know, like the guy had like a French accent, so that's how I imagine and that, it. Oh and of course, I yeah. So so that's hilarious. It was booby trapped and Oliver sensed it. Now with the traps all disarmed by Oliver set off, they head back down the stairs to the door. There's a funny scene where Luthien and Oliver are chatting while the halfling is trying to get his man gauche out of the door, but is having trouble. Or his mangosh. gosh I don't know how you say that. Mangosh. Mangosh. Whatever. Whatever you want to say. Mango. He's got mango. he He's got that mango. So he grabs it with two hands, jumps up and plants both of his feet on either side of the door, both of his feet <laughs> on either side of the door, and tears the dagger free and does a backward somersault landing perfectly on his feet. Luthien and Oliver, go ahead. Well, that's after um, Luthien makes fun of him.
1: Too bad you don't have your yeah. He's like, And then Oliver's just like, I'm going to get it back.
0: Yeah. I'm getting gets
1: it up back. There, it right gets now, flip, flip, flip.
0: I just, I Great. also imagine when he walks up to it for the first time, he tries to grab, he's like, I'll just grab this. And it's not going like in yeah. pirates of the Caribbean. When uh, Jack yeah. Sparrow yeah. throws yeah, yeah, his, yeah. his sword it's, against the wall and he's like, <laughs>
1: trying to get it. Yeah, It's like, it's like either like a pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean scene, or it's like a scene from like hot shots or something where like the guy can't, he's trying to do something. He's like, or, um, with, uh, like any Austin Powers movie ever, yep. right? Where, like, stuff just doesn't work.
0: <laughs> so once the place was... Sufi- oh, Luthien and Oliver make their way down or make their way into the house, and they found more traps. But at least they these were Oliver's own, so he knew of them. Yes. yes. The house was uh, a charred mess, obviously burned and ransacked. It seemed to Luthien that Oliver had many enemies. They spent the next two days cleaning the apartment, only taking breaks for meals when they would return from their breaks they would find street kids playing in the apartment once the place was sufficiently cleaned up oliver announced to luthien that they would be furnishing the apartment the next night but luthien was confused go ahead i'm sorry i'm sorry to interrupt yeah um i just wanted to talk about what they had
1: used to burn the apartment it looked like somebody threw what we would call a molotov cocktail at
0: him yeah he uh, yeah what did they call it in the book it was like elvish elvish
1: Elvish wine? hot wine. Yeah. It's a bottle of potent oils with a lighted rag at the end. So, you know, basically it's an oil version of a Molotov cocktail.
0: Yeah, I just kind of imagine that people went in there looking for Oliver. They didn't find him. so They're like, okay, let's just take his shit. And they took all the stuff and, and they're burn. like, yeah. and we need to burn this because I don't want my fingerprints here. So, you know what I mean? Basically. Light that yeah. stuff on fire. No more fingerprints. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Screw Oliver.
1: <laughs> it's basically how I took it, too.
0: So Luthien was confused because he didn't think that they had enough funds, to which Oliver broke the news that he had been thinking of running e- an easy burglary, burglary job on a merchant's house well-known to Oliver. He's <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like, hey, man, we're low on our money. What are we going to do? I'm just going to go burgle this bitch down the street. <laughs> he knows this merchant-type guy. He's familiar with him. It'll be easy job.
1: We're buddies. He doesn't care. He knows.
0: He knows me. Luthien didn't seem thrilled by the prospect of robbing someone, but Oliver forced him to face the question head-on by explaining that sometimes stealing from people is illegal, and sometimes it's just business. Luthien seemed to hold off on making any judgments until he sees for himself. After all, their funds won't last forever, and they do need to make this apartment more homey for themselves. I like it. Then we abruptly cut to Luthien and Oliver making their way into the wealthy upper section of Montfort, where their, where their target's house is. Oliver is guiding Luthien easily on the rooftops of the grand houses. They notice that there are many patrolling Cyclopians in this area of town. Luthien is still feeling uneasy with this, but goes along with the halfling's plan. Oliver descended from the roof of a th- three stories up to a window where he used a glass cutter to break in quietly, and once he was inside, Luthien followed. Luthien had never seen such a collection. Intricate tapestries lined every wall, thick carpets covered the floor, and a myriad of artifacts, vases, statues, decorative weapons, and even a full suit of plate mail armor littered the large room. Oliver started sorting through the valuables, giving Luthien hand signals, but then the pair heard loud footsteps. Oliver jumped out of the window, Luthien put out the lamp at the last moment, and then stood still as two Cyclopean guards entered the room. One of the cyclopians had stared directly at Luthien, but didn't see him because he was wearing the hooded cape. Just as the coast was, seemed clear, the other Cyclopeans saw the broken glass from the window. The two cyclopians shout that they saw something on the roof and, ra- and ran out of the room. At which point Oliver swings back into the window, just as they started to hear more footsteps heading towards the room again. <laughs> it's just not going super well. Uh well actually considering Considering I guess it is going all right. He goes in and they they start casing the place and then uh they gotta make a quick break and then comes back in. And the Cyclopean stared right at Luthien, and it's just like he can hear his own heartbeat in his freaking ears, and the is like I love his tapestry. And it's like, okay, we're good. He's just about to draw his sword and he doesn't. Yep. Oliver picks the lock on the drawer. Oh, um, let's see here. No, Luthien and Oliver hide under the cloak as the merchant, along with several guards, enter the room. Upon his own inspection, the merchant was pissed that they got away, but very loudly proclaims that at least they didn't take his statue or his jewels. He then orders the guards to con- conduct a search and leaves the room. <laughs> what a bad... I mean, it's so, it's so stupid. It's funny. It reminded me of, like, um uh, a scene from, like, uh... That, uh, what's that game, the Elder Scrolls um, Sky, Skyrim? Yeah. Where like the yeah. NPCs are like, oh, did I hear something? Oh, I guess not. I'll just leave the room now. Good thing they didn't take my jewels that are in this uh, drawer right here. Drawer,
1: which can easily be picked by a level
0: 10 lockpick. So Oliver picks <gasps> the lock on the drawer containing the jewels and other valuables, stuffs them into a small sack, then tells Luthien to get the statue the merchant had talked about. They wait until the coast is clear outside before escaping with the newly acquired loot, but they did leave something behind. So here's a a little excerpt: The light in the room had been dim, and the friends did not notice the most significant mark they had left behind. But the merchant most certainly did. On the tapestry, where Luthien had first hidden from the Cyclopians, loomed the silhouette of a caped man—a crimson-colored shadow somehow indelibly stained upon the images of the tapestry. No amount of washing could remove it. The wizard the merchant later hired only stared at it helplessly after several futile attempts. The crimson shadow was forever.
1: Oh, I like that.
0: And that was the first job, man. I mean, that was a it was a quick one, but uh <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing.
1: That chapter went quick because it was interesting, right? So this is we have some character building between Oliver and Luthien. And we find out that Oliver is not so bad. You know, he's letting the kids come into the house, all this other stuff. Yeah. Right? I, th- I feel like Oliver is like, he's he's an anti hero, but still leaning more towards like neutral good or
0: chaotic good. I'd say you know chaotic what I mean? good for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so,
1: so we get go really ahead. good character building between the two. Uh, we get just a little bit of insight into Oliver's. You know, being a little bit more, and it was really fun to see how they played on each other during this first job. And when when the Cyclopians were in the room, I actually forgot at first that Luthien had the cape. Yeah, and I was like,
0: "Uh, "Yeah, he's screwed. What's
1: gonna happen? He's gonna have to kill these guys." Yeah. And then I was just like, when they burned the shadow, I was like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, well, that is so cool.
0: When they when he first gets away from the two cyclopians because he's wearing his hood. And then Oliver swings back in and then they hear more footsteps. I'm like, "Okay, now they're going to actually have to fight." But yeah. Then they what's cool about it is it shows like another power of the cape. It's like anything under the cape can be hidden. Yeah. And so that's interesting because they're like the perfect team. Luthien's kind of he's not scrawny, but he's skinny enough where he can throw Oliver underneath and be like, "Yo, dog, we're just we're just the wall now." <laughs> Be cool. It's the cops. Uh, So, some points to bring up about the chapter, bro. Tinfoil hat time for Dan. I got something to bring up. Oliver has magically enhanced dexterity is my tinfoil hat thought here. I got some points I want to bring up about that. Point one, Oliver has super halfling dexterity. Oliver, here's a here's an excerpt from the from the chapter. Oliver leaped up. this is when um, he wanted to get the mangosh out of the door. Oliver leaped up, grabbed the hilt of the man gauche in both hands and planted his feet on either side of the of the door. A heave brought the blade free and sent Oliver and Oliver's great hat flying. He did a backward somersault landing nimbly on his feet and caught his hat as he slipped the man gauche back into the scabbard. So he's doing some crazy flips, okay, and catches his hat midair and is able to do this. I mean, have you heard of halflings been able to have this kind of dexterity? I mean, it it seems super halfling, you know, in, in the same sense as superhuman. You know what I mean? Okay, it's point two. Go with me on this. I think his power comes from the man Ghosh. Only when he's actively wielding the dagger does he do crazy agile things like somersaults, wildly wildly distracting weapon attacks, and easily disarming drunken brawlers. Okay. Point three, he never lets anyone else touch the man Ghosh. So here's another part from the book. Too bad you don't have your man Ghosh, says Luthien. Luthien quipped behind him, seeing his dilemma. You could disarm the door. Oliver turned a not appreciative glare on his friend. Luthien reached over the halfling for the stuck dagger, but Oliver Oliver slapped his hand away. No, don't touch this thing. Right? Okay. You, you, now you're starting to get with me, all right? Oliver treats it like a person. Oliver treats this mangosh like a person. Oliver grabbed the hilt of the mangosh and with a great tug, uh, and gave a great tug, but it did not pull free from the door. That is only because they never came to know my most charming personality, he explained. He stood straight, on his hand, straight with his hands on his hips and eyed the weapon as though it were a stubborn enemy. So I'm thinking in my head that this man gauche is a magical Mangosh, Like, it's got in, an enchantment on it. And maybe it even, like, could go as far as speaking to him. So when he has a, a situation like this where, I mean, he's got to disarm some traps, hey, he'll throw his magic Mangosh. It's not going to do anything. You know what I mean? Throws that, and then he tries to get it, and of course, it's biting itself into the door, being like, oh, you're just going to throw me, bro? You're not going to throw me. So he looks at it like, come on, dude. Just, dude, who else is going to wield you? Come on. Give it back. So I think that in the same way that Luthien has a cape that's magically enhanced, I think we're not being told, but I think the Mangosh is magical, too. Too tinfoil? too little too much? That's why we do this podcast. That's why we do this podcast.
1: <sighs> Thoughts? We've been talking about it since the beginning.
0: Uh, okay.
1: I, I, I appreciate your creativity.
0: Next uh point to bring up. Uh, doesn't have to do with the man ghosh. Luthien confronts Oliver oh, about being a thief. <laughs> Thank goodness. Gosh. Dan's gotta go down his rabbit God. holes. Okay. So this I'm is when um Luthien and Oliver are discussing um, whether it's right or wrong to steal from people. When Luthien's like, I don't want to go on this freaking job, dude. So to take another man's property is against the law, he answered. Aha! the halfling cried. This is where you are wrong. Sometimes to take another man's property is against the law. Sometimes it's also called business. And is what you do business? the young bedwear asked sarcastically. Oliver laughed at him. What the merchant types do is business, he replied. What I do is enforce the law. Do not confuse law with justice, Oliver reasoned. Uh, Not in the time of King Greenspan. With that, the halfling rolled over, ending the conversation. Luthien remained awake for some time considering the words, but uneasy nonetheless. So he says, he says, what the merchant types do is business. What I do is enforce the law. Right after saying, to take another man's property is against the law. Or Luthien says that. To take another man's property is against the law. Truth. That's truth. And then that's where the halfling goes, but you're missing the point here. This is where you are wrong. Sometimes to take another man's property is against the law. Sometimes it's called business. And he's comparing merchants stealing from just people stealing. So, so by Oliver saying that he is enforcing the law, is he acting on behalf of the people who their property has been stolen from?
1: That's what I'm thinking. Like as if
0: he's the law enforcement for the people that don't have a voice or whatever.
1: I feel like I feel like Oliver thinks he's some sort of um
0: Vigilante, sort of fan, Robin Hood.
1: Vigilante, Robin Hood. That's what I was going to say, yeah.
0: I also wanted to point out that um, uh, his targets of their burglary. It's the merchant's house, not his shop. He's not stealing goods. He's stealing wealth that he believes have has been ill-gotten. And I appreciate mm. that personally because, like, knowing business owners, I would be pissed if someone stole from their business. But if for whatever reason they were shady people and, you know, they got a mansion with just extravagant stuff in there, it's obvious that their little shop front is not what's making them all that money. They're doing something else that's causing that. And so he's not stealing from the shop. He's, or from the goods that people need, he's stealing from the people themselves or the the merchant types themselves. So I thought that was cool. Um, Places of note, tiny Alcove street, Four doors down and straight down the stairs on the right is the door to Oliver's house. Had been burned and ransacked for valuables, Luthian and Oliver spent f- the first few days of their time in Montfort cleaning up the place. It also seemed to attract some local street kids for some reason.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Montfort's upper section. Grand houses of wealthy merchants and nobles are in this area of the city, surrounded by a wall that separates the outer, poorer part of Montfort from them. The area is yeah. patrolled by uh, Petro- uh uh, Praetorian Cyclopians that are paid by wealthy in, by the wealthy inhabitants what up
1: this is where we get not maybe the first sight of the uh, class divisions but this is where it's really hammered home that there is a clear difference yeah between you know and, and you can see it in our own societies like it's nothing new But this is where we get that first real vision kind of of, okay, you walk in to Montfort. Here's this, you know, nice sprawling city. There's taverns. There's this, that, and the other thing. And now you're in Tiny Alcove, and it's a total shithole. Oh, and now you're in the higher quarter, and there's Mm -hmm. guards everywhere.
0: And there's a wall. And there's
1: big houses and there's walls and there's all these different things to separate these people that just don't even want to deal with the street urchins.
0: Yeah. You know, he talks about when, when they're first going on their, uh, their first job, they're jumping through the rooftops of this, this upper um, area. And they're at least three stories tall on the houses. This isn't some apartment complex where you have like 15, Families living in one building. This is a single person's home that's three stories tall, you know? So it really shows the disparity there. And then also the fact that there's so many patrolling guards there. And And there's even some on rooftops. Yep. It's like they're aware. They know what's up. So that does it for chapter 14. Um, What do you think of the title now that we went through what the first job was? I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it fit well um it does. you know it, it, ma- really it kind of makes you th- you don't know what to expect uh when you read that you think oh maybe they're gonna get hired or something like you said that's what but, i thought but it ended up being oliver comes up with the jobs and i kind of yeah. like that he's on his own he's like hey here's the first job dude we need to furnish this apartment bruh yeah it's like all about
1: furnishing the apartment and now i think in the next chapter we find out that he's looking for like an array of coats yeah i'm just like what is this guy's damage like what who hurt him
0: (laughs) it's it's awesome so that that brings us right into the next chapter which is kind of takes place the next week so yeah this i think it's actually three weeks later oh is it three weeks i thought it was three jobs
1: Uh, well
0: so I'll, i'll i'll read what i have to say and you can correct me if you find it okay I'll just read the first sentence here.
1: Uh, you're correct. Third excursion.
0: Okay. So this chapter starts off with a scene with Luthien lounging on a comfy chair. So he's got, they got furnished with yeah. his bare feet on an expensive rug, being all comfortable after their third excursion into the merchant section this week. So it's like kind of a week later or within the week, they've done three jobs and he's already got a comfy chair. He's already got a nice soft little carpet that he's putting his little toesy woesies into. You know what I mean? Yeah. Luthien was comfortable at the moment, but still wrestling with the thoughts of his own nobility and guilt. Sure, he and Oliver had transformed the Ranshackle apartment into a comfortable and even thriving living space, but at what cost, he wondered. He ultimately decided that he was just Luthien now, the thief in the Crimson Cape.
1: He's looking at this cape, or he's looking at this vase, talked uh, talked uh, talk Oliver out of selling it, reminding him winter is approaching, they need the funds for the supplies et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, comfortably, the word rang strangely in Luthien's sights. Mm. He had been in Montfort for just over three weeks.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy how fast time flies when you're... Yeah. But look, oh, Okay, look... so what does this mean? Good point. It has been three weeks, and it was yes. the third job this week. So they've been doing jobs all the three weeks. So, you know, you can look
1: at this, right, and you can
0: see, like... They're not messing around. No, or maybe right Luthien's
1: Luthien's just kind of like, okay, I'm gonna go with you now. Oliver. Let's. What are we doing next? Oh, I'll put my cape on and I'll be here and I'll do this. And you just see that, like, he's still fighting with this whole lifestyle, which I can totally understand from a morality standpoint. But uh, I, I, I like, I really like this. This I like this opening too particular. because
0: it's realistic. Like, you know, if if you're doing, you can do anything for like a semester, which is what like. Um you know, four months, three months, three months. months. you can yeah. do anything for that amount of time, even if you don't like it. So, yeah. um, in this case, it's been three weeks is imagine you are starting a new job that you, you don't like you're a dishwasher or you're, a, yeah. you know, you're, you're shoveling gravel or you're doing something in, in a boring, um, environment. And it's just mind numbing. You get used to it. You get comfortable with it. You still don't think like this isn't lighting a fire in my soul, but you're doing it. And and they show that in... the Bob shows that in this writing. And it, it actually... I'm glad that you pointed out the three-week thing. I didn't catch that because it makes more sense when they go into the market later on when they talk about the things that Oliver has shown him. And, like, it wouldn't make sense for Oliver to show him that amount of things within a week. But in three yeah. weeks, yeah, he could have imparted some knowledge. So, with a burst of self-conscious energy, he went to the Oaken... Uh, Luthien, went to the Oaken table... And smoothed out a parchment to lay uh, on top. That lay on top. So now he's about to write a letter to Garrus. And here's the entirety of the letter. I've, I've taken out the parts where um, they're talking about what he's thinking internally. But here's the letter he writes to Garrus. And he ha- he's not going to send this. He's just writing out his thoughts. To Garrus, Earl of Bedwurgen, Luthien read his own writing. Gingerly, the young man, sat down and took a quill and an inkwell from the desk's top drawer. Dear father, he wrote. He smirked sarcastically to think that in a span of a few seconds, he had nearly doubled all the writing on the parchment. I laughed. He, yep. He had begun this letter 10 days ago. And that makes sense. Now, 10 days, of course, it would you know, within three weeks. If he scribbled a heading... Uh, if a scribbled heading could be called a beginning, and now, as then, Luthien sat back in the chair, staring ahead blankly. So now here begins the letter. I am in Montfort, have taken up with an extraordinary fellow, a Gaskin named Oliver de Burroughs. I do not know why I am writing this. Actually, it would seem that you and I have very little to say to each other. I wanted you to know that I was all right and doing quite well, or perhaps I'm not so well. Luthien wrote, I am troubled. Father, by what I've seen and what I've learned, what is the lie we live? Or what is this lie we live? What fealty do we owe to a conquering king and his army of Cyclopean dogs? You should see the children of Montford, They scrambled about the gutters, seeking scraps or rats, while the wealthy merchants grow wealthier still off the labors of their broken parents. I am a thief, father. I am a thief, he says in exclamation points. I know there is a terrible wrong in the land. My friend Brindamore called it a, can- a canker, and that description seems fitting, for the rose that was once Eriador is, a dying, is dying before our very eyes. I do not know if King Greensparrow and his dukes are the cause, but I do know, in my heart, that anyone who would ally himself with the Cyclopians would favor the canker over the rose. This infestation, this plague, lies thick beyond behind Muntfer's inner walls, and there I go, in the shadows of night, to take what little vengeance my pockets will hold. I I have whetted my blade in the blood of Cyclopians, but I fear that the plague is deep. I fear for Eriador. I fear for the children.
1: This was so freaking
0: good. Very talented. This
1: this you know we've gotten a little segments like Luthien felt wrong about this. Luthien this, Luthien that. This is our first real monologue from Luthien by himself. Yep. Kind of pouring his heart out. Almost as though he's actually speaking to his father, but he's not actually talking to him.
0: Yeah, he, you know, he, you get the, the sense that he wants to talk to Gareth so bad. This
1: was awesome. Because this shows where Luthien's heart and where Luthien's actual uh, allegiances lie. His allegiances aren't necessarily... To I'm not saying yep. that he doesn't, you know, respect his father and his upbringing, but his allegiance is to anyone who would fight against the Cyclopean canker. I I love this part.
0: Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It, it really gives you a taste of what Luthien's thinking. He's finally taking a stand and going, you know what? I am a freaking thief, but I'm doing what I think is right in my own little way and uh, he doesn't like it, but he, he does wish he could confide in his father. Frustrated, Luthien sat back and ruminated about the letter, about his life, and about how insignificant he was. He then cried himself into a nap. Oliver arrived shortly after, seeing Luthien asleep, and was about to rouse his companion from slumber when he noticed the parchment laying on the table. He understands the plight of the young man and immediately wakes him up, to join him on some errands to get some new coats before winter.
1: But let's make a point here. Yep. He, Oliver sees this, and he is at first not guilt-stricken, but he's hit with, like, a sense of, oh, crap. You know, like, this Mm -hmm. sucks. Like, I know he's down. So what does Oliver do? not saying you should ever fake it, but he kind of forces a smile to get Luthien out of this slump and say, hey, come on, let's go. You know, come on with me. I, I need your help. And he's he's trying to be bright and bubbly and excited when he knows clearly that Luthien is maybe not in a good way here.
0: Yeah. And and let's delve into that deeper at the end of the chapter, uh sure. during one of the points sure. to bring up, because that's that is a really good thing that you that you caught on to. So um Luthien then understands, oh, here we go. Um. So they need to get some coats before winter. Luthien then understands Oliver's need for so many coats, because he's like, "Why do you need so many coats, bruv?" As it becomes you're clear,
1: keep one and throw the rest of them in the street.
0: Yeah. So it becomes clear to him that the discarded coats will become will come to good use among the children of the street. Yes. He finds a new spring in his step, now having more noble a, no, a more noble goal in mind. As they head to the market. So he's feeling better. He's like, yeah, dude, let's go get you some coats. Let's go help some people. Because that's what Luthien wants to do. Yep. He wants
1: to help people fight this this sickness that he believes is now Iriador
0: and you know all the lands. While traveling through the bustling market, we learn more about the skills Oliver had trained into Luthien, about being more observant and careful. Keeping his hand against his purse, for example. So they talk about how Oliver has imparted some of these skills and stuff. And now Luthien's walking through the streets confidently, but he's got his hand on his purse. I I absolutely love how
1: there is this whole, not secret society. I don't think it's secret. There's this whole second society of, and we see more about it at the end of the chapter here with them walking by these different thieves and stuff. And the one kind of laughs at Oliver when he walks into Luthien. But my point is, there's like this whole second society of people who are thieves, of people who are cut purses, vagrants, vagabonds, whatever you want to call them. And it's almost like it's an understood and accepted part of society. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I remember when I read this the other night, I was like, huh, that's pretty funny. You know, like if you're going to the market cover your coin purse. Somebody's going to rip you off. Otherwise, like I'm telling you, you're going to get robbed if you don't protect yourself. And like, I think that's awesome. Like people are just cognizant of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, It's one of those things where like, even if you go traveling abroad, people tell you, you know, put your um, wallet in your front pocket, you know, don't keep it in your back pocket. Watch out for people that are are trying to um, dazzle you in the front while their friends come from behind. And that's exactly what happens in this story is like, he's talking about a lot of the jugglers and the street musicians and stuff are actually kind of a front for like roaming bands of uh, pickpockets. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also get the, the general idea that that's kind of a low level of thievery, you know, like, like Oliver catches onto that, like nothing. And he just walks among them knowing all the tricks. So by him and Luthien, doing the things that would protect themselves, that's also sending a, a subtle signal to them, yo, guys, not only are we one of you, but we're better. We we yeah. do the actual shit, so they don't mess with them. They don't uh, get messed the with
1: The guy them. that lost the statue, that was your boys.
0: Your yeah, boys. Yeah, yeah, I got a nice, comfy uh, rug for my toesy welpsies. So the pair traveled through the streets together. As Luthien observed... Uh, Oliver bargaining with the large caravan dealers that had just come in the night before. On their way out of the market, after a nice day of shopping, Luthien becomes awestruck at the sight of a beautiful, fairborn fairborn girl who Oliver revealed was obviously a slave. Luthien didn't understand. had no idea what that was. He's like, what do you mean... What's a slave? Slave. Like, he knows the... I, I have to believe he knows the concept. But yeah. they go into explaining how, like, on his... Uh, on, um on uh, Eriador or Dunvarna, they didn't have any slaves in the whole land. So it's just kind of weird to him to actually see it so blatantly out in the open, you know, not in some cave or something like that. Luthien didn't understand how someone who was so striking could be a slave. She then disappeared into the crowd and the pair went back to the apartment to drop off the day's hall before heading to the dwelf for a nightcap. At the tavern, Luthien's thoughts drifted from the elf girl to his childhood sweetheart, Catherine O'Hale. How much had Luthien grown in these past weeks, for him to consider Catherine the love of his youth? His emotions amplified since leaving his home, and he's just starting to come to terms with his new life. Oliver starts explaining to Luthien how most half-breeds, half-elf and half-human, which is what the slave girl was, are slaves. We also learn that within the hierarchy of species, dwarves are treated the worst, Luthien gets drunk, and with the help from Tasman keeping his mug full, as the young man grumbled about injustice and vengeance. The halfling then elbows Luthien to get Luthien to pay attention to a conversation some locals and Tasman were having about rumors involving the resurgence of someone called the Crimson Shadow. The general consensus was that the renowned thief was a good thing. The crowd even called a toast to the Crimson Shadow. The chapter concludes with one of the gossipers slipping out of the bar, revealing his merchant seal to some local guards on his way to report what he had just heard. Oh boy, that's a good ending. So, so this
1: to me was like, are they watching Luthien and Oliver? Or are they looking for information about this crimson shadow? Yeah. Who's only, Who's only really maybe struck the one time that we've heard of.
0: Yeah, um... I think they're just listening in. Like, I think they just got spies, you know, like yeah, merchant yeah. guys that are just like, dude, we are getting hit. These past three weeks have been brutal for business. Because
1: Oliver's back in town. The boys are back in town. <laughs> the boys are back in town. They're back in town.
0: So um, some points to bring up. I have just a, a title here. I don't have anything written for it. Luthien coming to terms with his newfound life. So he's. it's been three weeks in. We just kind of talked about it a little bit. You know, you do something for three weeks. You start to get used to it he's actually pretty much come to terms with he's a thief now yeah. and well, his he's, letter
1: his letter expresses that
0: yeah and he's like you know what um I'm a little ashamed still but I'm trying to do the best I can
1: I want to bring up a point this letter right we talk about how maybe he never intends to send it yeah the letter the letter is to the more serious part of himself yeah almost like he's having a conversation with himself saying I know I'm not okay with this but I'm a thief now yeah and I have to accept it I'm a thief.
0: Exactly. And
1: it's almost like Garrus is like his upstanding, serious part of his personality, which we all know he has. Yep. And Luthien now is like this, not bottom dweller, but almost like this up and coming Robin hood. Yeah. Basically the
0: crimson shadow, the crimson Shady. It leaves a red mark on the tapestry, and it won't go away. I freaking love that, but dude. But Oliver and Luthien don't know this, right, at this no, point? they don't So they, until we're told about it at the end of the chapter. Well, I mean, so we were told about it at the end of the chapter, so we as the audience know, and now we just get into this chapter where it's been three weeks, and he's already done three jobs this week. So how many freaking crimson shadows are freaking yeah. around, dude? That's why they're talking yeah. about it in the taverns. Uh, next yeah, point I want to bring up. This is what we were. This is what I asked you to to hold till the end because um, I wanted to go into it a little bit deeper. Oliver's Keep reaction. That. Oliver's reaction to Luthien's letter to Garrus. The letter uh, that Luthien wrote to his father not only reveals Oliver's identity and location, but also implicates him as someone who introduced Luthien into a world of unlawful actions. My initial fear was that when Oliver would find the note. He would threaten Luthian's life. But once again, the halfling surprised us with gestures of sympathy. He wakes the young Bedwear And
1: understanding.
0: Yes. He wakes the young Bedwear and demands he get up and help him procure at least a dozen more coats before winter. This gets Luthien out of his funk and we soon learn the lesson uh, about Oliver's Robin Hood like nature, about how he gives it to the kids. Go ahead.
1: I will say this, if Oliver was gonna kill Luthien, he would have done it already. He said multiple opportunities, including when Luthien is drunk at the end of the chapter.
0: Absolutely, it's just kind of uh, it, it's. It, I found it really interesting because as soon as Oliver walks in and he's about to wake up Luthien, and he sees the note. I'm like, oh crap, Luthien, I, get out! I of never it. thought of that. I, I never did. even thought of that. No. I was like, dude, we're in we're in Oliver's court here, and so this could get ugly. But Oliver reads it and then he looks at Luthien with sympathy and he's like, dude, I know your feels, bro. Like. You know what? Let's get you up and at 'em, dude. Let's let's go do something that's gonna make you uh, want to do this. Feel good.
1: <laughs> let's go steal the, some. Shit. <laughs>
0: the the last point I want to bring up is the merchant spies. That merchant was talking actively in the the gossiping group, being like, "Is it a good right idea?" Uh, if the Crimson Shadow's here. And then the, the the drunken locals are like, of course it's a good idea. If it's bad for the merchants, it's good for us, bro. To the Crimson up? Shadow! And, and then like a dozen people hold up their mugs to the Crimson Shadow. Yeah, so then he yeah. rolls out, and it's not just some dude that's a merchant. He's got a merchant seal. He's part of the merchant guild, just in the same way that there's a thieves guild. So it's like, um, that I want to know who that guy is. Oh, oh, point, yes. possible yes. point. We see that
1: these guards let him pass with this merchant seal and their cyclopians. Ergo, they could also work for Greensparrow. Ergo, the Merchants Guild could also be in cahoots with Greensparrow. Holy shit.
0: They could be in cahoots with Well, they definitely are because the, the cyclopians were given to the dukes of all those cities. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So like if
1: these if these cyclopeans are letting these merchant types pass, then these merchant types are just like, yo, dog out of my way. Here's my seal. Move your shit. So if they're letting these guys through. That means that these merchants are higher standing than even the technical spies. Yeah. Green Sparrow and the Dukes, which tells me these merchants are in bed with Green Sparrow.
0: They're connected. And Luthien and Oliver might be stepping into uh, something a little deeper than they expected.
1: Right, a bigger pile of horse manure than we thought.
0: Places of note: tiny alcove nice. street. Many trades and fences um, are on this street. They just they describe in the chapter a fence. For those of you who don't know, is a dealer or dealers of stolen goods, and mm. they're available to anyone who operates on this street. So they're... I was
1: wondering what that was.
0: Okay, yeah. So a fence is just like you know, hey man, I got a vase, a blue vase. You got anybody in the market for a blue vase? Um, that's all it is. It's someone who ste- who resells your stolen stuff. At a, okay. At a, they do it for – they charge you like, okay, I will, I'll take uh, a third and then you get two thirds. You got the goods. I'm going to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And that way when you give it to someone else to sell, it doesn't go back to you, hopefully, is the idea. Um, and – the large trading caravan's journey to Montfort. So they talk about the when they go into the market that a large trading caravan had just gotten in there the night before and they name drop a bunch of places. So map time, it. Pull out the map, turn your books to the back of the page here. All right. So the market was bustling this bright day. A large trading caravan, the last major one of the year, had come in the previous night, traveling from Avon through uh, Malpuce's Wall, and all the way around to the northern spurs of the Iron Cross. Most goods come came in through Port Charlie to the west, but with the Baradween pirates running their straits, running the straits, the largest and wealthiest, the largest and wealthiest of the southern merchant caravans sometimes opted for the longer but safer overland route. So let's go on the route here. So let's zoom in a little bit on this map. If you look down at the Iron Cross. Uh, just below where it says Avon. So they're coming from Avon, and it says they go from Avon through Malpusin's Wall, which is going to be over here. Here's Malpusin's Wall. So they they get all their goods in Avon, bring it up to Malpusin's Wall. Then um, they go all the way around the northern spurs of the Iron Cross. So here's the Iron Cross, northern spurs, and they make their way up to Montfort. So that's the way, that's the overland route. It takes a lot longer than going... Uh, the sea route, which is here's Port Charlie. So they go from Avon over probably to Mannington, get on a boat, and then they head uh, north uh, with Beridouin on the west. And then they go to Port Charlie. But the issue there is they come across the Beridouin pirates that take their goods randomly. So some of them just opt, hey, we're just going to go the overland route. So I think that's pretty cool. So we learned a little bit more about the trade routes. There is that. So, what else do we got here? Special people. There's one special person introduced in this chapter.
1: Nah, ha- nobody interesting. It's totally irrelevant. Whoever Someone
0: this is. who is smoking. Smoking hot. The half-elf slave girl. Arf. Very beautiful, despite wearing tattered clothing. Walks with head bowed, uh, long and thick wheat-colored hair that was shoulder length. Pointy ears poked out of her hair. Huge, bright, compelling green eyes that showed an inner strength that belied her low station in life. So that's it for the chapter, bro. Do you have any questions for Bob? Or anything? You, my
1: question for Bob, if I have to have a question for Bob, my yeah. question is, Bob, how do you have such a, excuse my bluntness, boring nothing happens chapter be so good.
0: I mean, I guess all they did is they they, went to the market, they bought some
1: coats and then they drank at the bar. (laughs) They didn't fight anybody. They didn't, they They didn't didn't go on a job. No, but there was like this feeling and there was like this atmosphere and there was this, this, this gentle tension in the marketplace, you know, with the other thieves and stuff. And it was captivating. I couldn't stop reading. I was like, I'll read this chapter in two parts. 20 minutes tonight, 20 minutes tomorrow night, I'll be done with it, you know. I read the whole damn thing. Yep. Well, so that's my question for Bob. How do you make because like for me, I can, you know, you saw with like my butcher scene, right? I can make that intense and I can make that, you know, interesting and dark. But how do I make my scenes that aren't that just as interesting and just as captivating? As a writer, I think that's something that is really important that we
0: figure out. I think how he does it and um Yeah, I think how he does it is through character conflict. You know how there's there's two types. There's the, what is it, external and internal? Mm -hmm. But I've got a special treat for you, bro, and special treat for the RBC podcast audience here. We have our first message from the people, and I wanted to share it with you, and we're going to discuss what they talk about. Is that cool? Um, You have a message from the people. I have a message from the people. Would you be willing to say that you
1: are the champion of the people? Potentially. How do I share Dang. my screen? Hold on. People's champion.
0: Screen share application. Here we go. Let me do know. All okay. Local content. Okay. You ready for this? Yes. Here we go. What Lufin determined was that every day that passed, Lufin found I like Oliver's company more and more. This halfling, admittedly a thief, was not an evil person. Far from it. From from his actions and tales of his past, those parts that Luthien decided might be the truth, Luthien can see that Oliver held himself up to very high principles. The halfling would only steal from merchants and nobles, for example, and despite his suggestions when they had the merchant and his white wife helpless
1: on the road, from, from what Luthien could discern, Oliver was reluctant to kill
0: anything except Cyclopians. Does that make him a racist if he's only killing Cyclopians? I think he's wrong because of killing the witnesses. Are we supposed to like Oliver because he seems like a bad person with thieving morals? But he's one of the main characters who works with Luthien. He's just being smart. He's witty. He's self-absorbed, and that's what I want in a character. Usually if a bad uh Usually if it's a bad person, it's a bad guy. Complex characters suck. So that came into us from uh Mrs. Breitner's 10th grade honors English class. Go Wolves! Arf, arf, guys. And uh, I wanted to share that with you because they brought up some interesting points that um, I'm just going to get the camera back on here that I think we can discuss and uh, lends a little bit to your question for uh, Bob. So starting with the first speaker, the first wolf that had something that was more of a statement. He said that Luthien decided that uh, he liked Oliver more and more. This is way back in chapter. Oh gosh, I think it was five and six. It's back
1: when they toppled the first caravan, right? Yes,
0: it was back in five and six. And he and um, he he basically is stating like, you know, at the end of it, Oliver's like, um, "I'm I'm going to we should kill these witnesses," and then doesn't. And all, and then through their travels, Luthien learns that he likes Oliver more and more through his lies. You know, like that what he can deem is the truth. And so I like that as a statement. The next thing that was brought up was, uh, does it make Oliver a racist that he kills only cyclopians? Are we supposed to like Oliver even if even if he is a bad person? So let's talk about that. So is he a racist for killing only cyclopians and not humans? I don't think so.
1: I don't think it's really a
0: racist thing because it's more like species thing. Like humans and elves and dwarves are not really – I mean even though we call them races, they're actually species. They're different species. So to be racist is more like – I think that's more like I believe my people are way better than yours. So I want to just stop you from doing anything. You are below me when he's dealing with cyclopians these cyclopians are actively attacking him i don't think he would have attacked the cyclopians had they not attacked him first
1: i think there's a, i think there's some history right i think there's there's got to be some history for oliver's hatred for cyclopians yeah. and i don't think i don't think it's just you know it's like okay your character can hate something right, right. but there's a reason for it mm-hmm. they don't just hate it because it's xyz there is a actual concrete reason and I don't think we found it out yet why Oliver hates cyclopian so much. Yeah. There has to be an actual reason. And I'm going to predict, haven't read it. I, this last chapter we just discussed is the last chapter I've read. I'm going to predict that it's because they screwed up his, his thieving in the first place.
0: Mm. Could be because they're owned That's by the prediction. merchants. Kind of. It's my prediction. Um, and another thing to note is, uh, that the, the second speaker mentioned that, um, he was, he, that he killed the witnesses. He actually didn't kill the witnesses, uh, in that chapter. He let them go. He let them go because more than one got away. He's he was yeah. I think he was just putting on an act. We didn't know Oliver back then very well, but as you go through the rest of the story, you start to see he was probably never going to kill those people.
1: You need to know that Oliver is a lot of talk. Yes. Uh, just from his character so far, and like sure, I'm I'm more than certain that he'd be capable of killing somebody or something, but not that we've seen. Right. Other than, other than maybe Cyclopeans, and his horse uh, technically killed the one.
0: The third speaker said, he's just being smart, he's witty, and that's what he likes in a character. I like that. That's pretty much how I took it, too. It's yeah. like, yeah. if you look deep into Oliver's character, uh, even though it's just um, simple sayings that he's saying, and what he's saying is directly going against what his actions are. He's saying, I will kill all you guys. He doesn't kill a single person. I mean, I argued that Threadbear killed somebody, but... Not really. Um, Oliver's Oliver's innocence. And then um, the last speaker says, this is where it gets to the point that we were talking about, that character conflicts suck, man. And this is what I wanted to get into. Where you were saying, how do you make such a boring chapter so interesting? And it brings us to character conflicts, internal and external. Internal being the stuff that you're dealing with in your mind, the things that are like breaking your heart, the things that are making you make choices between something good or bad. And then you have the external, which is some, like, I'm actively being attacked, I need to defend myself, or I'm going to go steal from somebody. And what you got in these past two chapters. Well, specifically in the last chapter is a lot of internal character conflict of Luthien finally coming to terms with himself, but still feeling uneasy about it, writing that letter to Garrus, going into the market um, and uh, really kind of taking on his own thoughts.
1: I think a lot of the reason that it felt so fresh was because that this is the first time that Luthien has really faced it. And going back off of the last speaker was saying complex characters Um, when you have a character that is bad, but you really like them and they're bad for good reasons. Yeah. Uh, it's called an anti-hero and they're my favorite. Yeah, me too. You want you, I want to, I want a guy that beats the living piss out of the hero, but does it for a good reason. Whatever reason that is, it's none of my business, but but as I'm reading, I find out why and I'm like,
0: Oh, I see why you did that. Yeah. I'm always drawn to those heroes too.
1: Yeah. And you have those moments, right, where you're reading something and you're like, this guy's an asshole. But then something happens, you're like, that's why they're that way. Oh, I'm a terrible person for hating them for that. Because <laughs> I'd be the same way. You know, like when you have those aha moments, that's why some complex characters, anti heroes, um, oh my God, villains that you sympathize with, that's why they're some of the most enjoyable characters. And yeah. I'm With you though, sometimes complex characters totally suck.
0: Yep, um, I really like I, I find myself drawn to those anti hero characters as well. Uh, I think in real life, if I were to meet an anti hero, I probably wouldn't like him. I think I would be like, dude, you're a jerk, you're freaking mean. Well, it's like it's
1: like when you're playing basketball in the schoolyard and you go to take a shot, and this really tall guy you never met before yep. just jumps up and swats the ball away and says, Um, um, I may, I'll, 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 I'm gonna bro, beat shoot you baskets so bad. around you, bro, make your head spin, and you're like, oh. I'm never playing basketball with him again. And then we weren't friends for like the next four years.
0: Yeah. In sixth grade, when all the schools came together, all the little (laughs) elementary schools, first day of recess, I go out, go over to the hoops and there's young Justin Mason playing some hoops. And I was like, Hey, can I play? And you're like, dude, I'm going to beat you so bad. I'll make your head spin. And i never, I didn't have the social maturity to be like, to be dish it back just kidding. or yeah. to like, you know, do anything. I was just like extremely hurt in the moment. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm not playing basketball. I'm going I'm to go play. I'm going to go play pogs over here. I'm like, go play some pogs and, and DBZ fight with some guys over here. Um, <laughs> one of the characters that comes to mind, I just want to bring it up because I, I don't know, I, it's something that's sticking in my head is, um, yeah, the bro. story of, uh, Miyamoto Musashi or Musashi Miyamoto. I forget which sure. one is his first name. He was known as like one of the greatest swordsmen of Japan ever. And this dude, I think was an anti-hero as well. I love reading about him, but he was a total jerk to other swordsmen. Basically he was super unkempt in a time where if you were a, a, a Ronin or even a samurai, you're always like dressed in your armor looking good and as a as a roaming samurai you were kind of like the, the a walking judge and jury for local towns and stuff and mm-hmm. he was just all his goal was was I'm just going to be a swordsman and I'm going to be the best swordsman ever he never lost a fight and there was one guy that was bragging up about how he could beat Musashi. He could beat Musashi, no problem. And he was like the best swordsman of his area. So Musashi's like, "Yeah, dude, I'll meet you there. Let's go. Let's go to the island, and uh, we'll we'll take our rowboats to the island. And I'll meet you at noon, and we will, um, or I'll meet you at like 10 a.m. and we'll we'll fight then." So the dude gets there with his entourage. He's all dressed up to the nines. He's ready to go. He's got a long long sword way longer than musashi's and that's what helped him win a lot of battles and it's 10 o'clock he's waiting for musashi musashi's not there he's like okay was musashi coming like what's going on two hours later musashi's still not there and musashi is just this freaking dog to this guy he's like this guy was unclean i could smell him from a mile away i challenged him because he said he could beat everybody i can beat everybody he's not even showing up and finally like four hours later musashi comes rolling up by himself so I was like, oh, you, you ready to fight now, man? And he's like, dude, I'm – what took you so long, blah, blah, blah? And he's like, hey, man, I thought you said 2 o'clock. And he's like, no, we said 10. And he got him so riled up that when he came in for the attacks and stuff, um, uh, Musashi was able to, like, use that anger to his advantage. Also, an interesting note, what really pissed this guy off is Musashi didn't use his sword because his sword was shorter than the other guy's sword. So he used one of his oars from his rowboat to block the attacks and defeat this guy. And what ended up happening is I think he ended up killing the guy on accident. And then I think that was like his last fight. But the, the idea there being is Musashi used every dirty tactic in the book, but he was a good guy. And he wrote, he later on wrote, um, a book called like, uh, the the Seven Rings or something like that about how to be a a good person and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like a meditative book. It's pretty cool, really short, but I wanted to bring that up because those are the characters that I am drawn to in literature. In real life, I'd probably be like that long swordsman being like, dude, you're such a stinky rat. Anyway, well, that's... Um, <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's episode. Really, really good insight there from Dan. Yeah, yeah I, I just love, I love sharing that stuff. <laughs> it good. No, it was good. dude. So, I thank you it. very much, uh, Miss Brightner's tenth grade honors English yeah. class. That was awesome. We're to always hear you guys. glad
1: to hear from you guys. Yeah, all, all, yeah.
0: Yeah. Any sure. anyone else who wants to shoot us a message, send us an email. We'll read it on on the air or listen to it on the air, and we'll discuss it. Doesn't matter what chapter you're on. We'd love to talk about it. So, with that, Justin, thank you for joining me.
1: Dan, as always, thank you for having me. Chapter, uh, this is a podcast, uh, it's absolute pleasure to be a part of. The two chapters today were awesome, and I'm really looking forward to the next episode.
0: Yeah, and you guys can check out his stuff. If you, if you liked what you heard in the beginning of the episode of his uh, latest work that he's working on, you can find more of his work uh, in the links in the description below. You can check him out, pick that up.
1: And feel free to follow us on Wattpad, Jared and Justin Authors. Awesome. Uh, Dan, let me ask you a question here. If the people like what they're hearing here on the YouTube, uh, where can they listen to the podcast?
0: You guys can listen to us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any place that you listen to podcasts. You can listen to us or watch us on YouTube or check us out on BitChute if you don't like YouTube. So check us out, guys. All right. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening to Random Book Club Podcast.